I don't know why so many people start the story by saying like, this is what I want or this is what I deserve and this is how I'm going to get it. And then they get upset when the results don't roll in. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Welcome back to the TMBA podcast. Lovely to have you on this fine Thursday morning. Bossman has phoned in from Austin, Texas, and I'm here in my final week in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Heading your way, Bossman. Looking forward to it, man. Thank God. You got me staying up late. I don't know how much more of this I can take. This is like when we were kids, we did this. It is rough. It is. <laughs> Ian, today, we are going to talk about Fighting. We are going to use fighting as a metaphor for the difficulties, the struggle, the process of building a business. There's a famous Mike Tyson quote that says, Everybody's got a plan till they get punched in the mouth. Like we're all getting punched in the mouth. That's the point. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a plan. And there's this great Jason Cohn article over at asmartbear.com, and it's called Kung Fu. Everybody was Kung Fu fighting. Those kids were fast as lightning. Now, Jason Cohn is the founder of WP Engine. He's been on this podcast before. I truly believe, Ian, his blog is like a national treasure. You spoke at DC Austin which is coming up next month. Mm-hmm. Hold on a second, though. Before we go on to Jason Cohen, I just want to, like, people are very confused. You and I are going to talk about fighting. I don't know if you've met me and you in person, but yeah, not really fighters, so no, I'm confused not, about that. Not big fighters. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I never. <laughs> I, like, half-clipped a guy in third grade. That's, that's the, the pinnacle of my fighting career. You can tell we were talkers, man. Talkers and runners. I can run pretty fast. So the premise of the episode was brought up by Jason Conan's blog, and he, he wrote a blog post called Kung Fu. <laughs> Again, what's funny about that is if you've ever met Jason Cohen, you would think, oh, this guy's talking about fighting too. So <laughs> it's like th three people that don't look like fighters talking about fighting. But it is fair because we're all in a fight. We're all part of a game that there's winners and there's losers. You're fighting for survival. You're fighting to make a living. You're fighting to make maybe riches. And the stakes are really high. Fighting to change other people's lives. Fighting yeah. to change marketplaces. And you want to come to that fight prepared with a plan, with principles, and we're going to call them moves. And so Jason wrote an article recently, and he called it Kung Fu. And the point of the article, I thought it was really compelling, was here's all my kung fu moves. Here's how I build businesses. Here's what I come to that fight with. You know, it's like choosing the character at the beginning of Mortal Kombat or whatever. You're like, I really like this move. I like that set of moves. And what I like about Jason's writing style 
is that he's not saying like this is the only way to grow a business, right? Like I know business gurus that say you should always double your prices and like that's their move. That's their kung fu move. And then you can find the same business gurus that are like you should slice your prices in half. That's a different move. You know, both can work. You don't really know which moves are going to be the final moves or the ones that help you to win in a fight. So it's really nice to come prepared with a bunch of them. And that's what we're going to do today, Ian. We're going to each share five of our favorite Kung Fu moves, three of which are going to be borrowed from Jason Cohn's brilliant article, and two of which are going to be ours alone. Are you ready for the challenge, boss man? I got some moves, dog. All right. I'm ready for this. You don't have to read the article. I mean, one of the cool things about this article is it was sort of a device for Jason to sort of play the greatest hits, so to speak, because he's written so many wonderful articles over the year about customer development, about pricing, about building teams, that he sort of used it as a chance to like list off his greatest hits. And so all of these like moves are little nuggets that are much deeper concepts underneath that if you find them interesting and you want to put them into your arsenal, so to speak, then you can go explore them further over at asmartbear.com. All right. My number one Kung Fu move, Ian. Again, my first three moves are going to be borrowed from Jason. Then I'm going to generate two of my own, as are you. The first is I don't like freemium. I want to learn from people who care enough to pay, not from the 20x more who don't. Ian, this is an issue we've been talking about since day one of the TMBA pod. Freemium, of course, is the business model that you give your a version of your product for free, and then you charge for features or for a smaller percentage of those users in order to make your revenue. But it also really extends to marketing. I mean, because now so many businesses are contingent upon building an audience and then sort of monetizing that audience. And this is, has a similar idea to freemium. And one of the moves, you know, the move here is that this idea that of engagement, and especially in the social media era, we're just out of our minds. We have no idea what engagement is, so many of us, especially people who are building an audience. You know, you think that because someone commented on something or they, they hit the retweet button, that that means something. It, it doesn't mean anything. If you want to build a business, the only thing that really matters is people swiping the card. That's my first move, Ian. If you want to figure out what your freaking engagement is, you want to engage with the plastic. You want to engage with the credit card. Charge for your ish. I can't believe that this is the point you brought up. I read this point when I'm coming up with my points to steal from Jason's points. And I thought, this is what we're screwing up over in Dynamite Jobs right now. And you picked it out. (laughs) This is basically our relationship. You're like, oh, yeah, we're doing that great. And I'm like, what are you talking about we're doing that great? We should be charging people. (laughs) (laughs) So this is what we're fighting about right now in Dynamite Jobs. And we're not really fighting about it, but... This is my judo move. I'm representing to you that I like this is philosophically, I appreciate charging people, but I don't really want to do it. (laughs) (laughs) My first move is Jason says, 
Churn needs to be lower than you think. 3% monthly churn is too high, and it means you're either not delivering reoccurring value or haven't found product market fit. The market stinks or some other critical problem. Hold up a second. Can you describe what churn is? Churn can be calculated a couple different ways, and it actually needs to be calculated in a cohort, which is basically a, a timeline. So you can have churn for 30 days, you can have churn for 60 days, you can have churn for a year, but you kind of have to look at like a snapshot and determine how much churn, how many people are leaving within that time period. Customers are basically canceling a recurring billing service. Correct. Yeah. So it's like how many people are coming in and how many people are leaving. This is something that we pay attention to all the time in our community, the Dynamite Circle. This 3% number, if you own a business like SaaS or if you own a business like a membership or anything where you have reoccurring payments, 3% is like extremely low. And I've even seen companies go to get acquired for millions and millions of dollars that have like 70% churn. So in a lot of ways, like I read this and I'm just like, oh man, you know, everybody's doing awful if this is the metric. (laughs) But I think what Jason is saying is true, which is basically you have to have a product that people love. The market might suck if you have a high churn or there's some other critical problem, like you don't have a product market fit. What's interesting about that move to me, like knowing that 3% is like the sort of demarcation line, is that it's not intuitive. Like if you came to me and said, hey, Dan, like, you know, only 4% of Dynamite Circle members left last month. I'd be like, oh, yeah, well, cool, man. 96% are sticking around. But the reality is, is like if you compound that over a year, you're screwed, right? That's the move. That's the idea here. But there are ways once you have that move. You could say, for example, okay, there's no way to improve that membership such that only 2% or 1% leave every month. So what you have to do then is you have to like discover revenue from that customer base. This is very common in a company where you say like, look, you know, I know a lot of the big marketing services products do this. They have a churn rate that's higher than 3%. So they got that move. They know that they cannot exist solely on that product. So what they're going to do is they're going to convert, say, 10% of their customers into like a 10x product. And then that's going to be the thing that allows the business to be healthy. There's all kinds of trickery going on with churn these days in these online businesses, especially to make them look good. But it's interesting, Dan, because when I think about like the products that I'm associating with like in the physical world, like I have extreme brand loyalty in some cases. So, you know, I'm just like sitting right now outside in my shop. I'm looking at a piece of wire that you would connect electronics to. And like, it's some off-brand, like I have no allegiance there, right? But then I look over at steering wheels for my race cars. And it's like, oh yeah, I only buy one brand of steering wheels. It's gotta be Momo Dog. No, for me, it's Sparco. But, <laughs> and every time I buy one, that's exactly what it is because I know the line, I know the fit, I know the feel, and it's really important to me. So I think in terms of my churn when it comes to steering wheels in my allegiance to the company is like, there's 0% churn. I always buy that product. I think it's very difficult online these days to accomplish what Jason is talking about. Number one, because it's hard to have a connection with a intangible product, an online product, and it's hard to have an allegiance. And also because there's tons of competition and it's very hard to differentiate yourself. My next move, Ian, is all startups are screwed. 
And again, these are Jason's words. Even when they're succeeding, they're screwed up. And a corollary, a startup has to be so excellent at one or two key things that they can then screw up at everything else. Sometimes that's airtight product market fit. Sometimes that's a defensible distribution channel. Sometimes that's product design so thrilling that every customer spreads the word to five more. The bad news is you don't know ahead of time what that one great thing will be. The good news is it's okay that most other things are screwed up. Now, I think this is an important one to understand, Ian, particularly when you're dealing with team building, because it's very common for team members to kind of want to touch everything to make everything okay. And I think as an owner, you sort of understand the move that, hey, like we can't be great at everything around here. The way that we're all going to get paid, the way that this thing is going to stay alive is that we get one thing right, you know? And that's really your role as an entrepreneur is to figure out what that one thing's going to be. The cash register that's going to put money into the bank account. And there's so many companies that make millions of dollars a year that have a shit website that haven't yet launched their social media program. And that to me is a professional Kung Fu move is understanding that your role is to find that one or two things and to focus on them. You have to direct your staff to do this too, to stay focused on what's going to pay the bills and what's going to bring home the bacon. So that's one of my favorite moves, Ian, is that all startups are screwed up. And by the way, your competition screwed up too. That was the point that I took away from that move, Dan, which is like people, I think they tend to put their competition on a pedestal, especially if they're like a new incumbent to the market. They're like, wow, they're amazing. I can't believe that they're doing so well. And then if you get the opportunity to like visit their office, you see all the problems, especially if you start talking with product managers and stuff like that. You're like, oh, this is broken all the time or this never works or, oh yeah, we're faking this. But from the outside, it's like really easy to put your competition on a pedestal. The other thing I want to say about the one thing, you know, this is evident in billion dollar companies. I had the opportunity to drive or actually it drove me the other day a Tesla Model 3, which is pretty cool with self-driving <laughs> capabilities. And it's a total game changer, Dan. Let me tell you, it's like a, it's a paradigm shift. It's going to change everything. But I've ridden in a 1989 Hyundai Accent that has better sound deadening quality. Wow. I could not believe the fit and finish in how much road noise I heard in this $60,000 car, but it was driving itself. So it was clear to me like what Tesla's priority <laughs> is, and it isn't keeping the noise out. It's the fact that this machine is driving you to, from point A to point B. Why this Kung Fu move is important to me is it's a mindset pattern that a lot of people that are stuck get caught up in, which is critiquing everything around them and critiquing companies around them. You see a lot of like freelancers and kind of service providers and consultants get caught up in this mindset of like, we got to fix this about you. You're not doing this right. I know how to do it better. And it's like, well, if you knew how to do it better, you'd have the company. That's the difference is like that entrepreneur, that owner understands that they just got to get that one thing. And then, yeah, of course, like they got to get their house in order, so to speak. They should have a social media campaign. They should have a good looking website, all that kind of stuff. But none of that matters. You just got to get the one thing. And so if you're in this, caught in this mindset where you're always like, you're figuring out how everything's wrong around you, start to look for what's right in that company. I think it's going to be a much more fruitful exercise.
Today's show is sponsored by Ahrefs. For a lot of our listeners, Ahrefs is already your number one go-to tool for optimizing SEO search traffic results. And this year, they have dramatically improved their Keywords Explorer by rebuilding it from scratch using new technology. Ahrefs new Keywords Explorer 3 gives users access to data not just from Google, but from nine more important search engines, including YouTube, Amazon, and Bing. For SEOs and content marketers, that means you can really maximize exposure for your work or business. Pretty cool. Remember that Ahrefs is not just about backlinks. It's actually a full suite of SEO tools, kind of like a Swiss army knife of search engine optimization, something that you never want to be without. So whether you need to run a technical site audit, do competitor research, or identify high-value keyword opportunities, Ahrefs is the tool you need, something I so wish I had back in my days as an SEO. Check them out at ahrefs.com. That's Ahrefs. And big thanks to Ahrefs for sponsoring the show. Dan, my next Kung Fu move via Jason. It's hard to get a thousand paying customers. It's easy to get a hundred. If you have a real product, price so that one to 200 is enough for all of the founders to work full time. Ooh. This means you have to charge 50 to 500 a month and make something of genuine value. Oh, that's a good move. I love that move. It is hard to get a thousand paying customers, relatively easy to get a hundred. And I think Jason's point too, which is like try and figure out a way. And actually, he had another point that I didn't put in here, but like $300,000 a year for like two founders is like a great living. So you don't have to like set the world on fire. You don't have to like come up with millions of customers and billions of dollars. Like figure out a way to do something really good, genuine value, and make a couple hundred people happy. And you'll make a great living off that. You know, we've done a lot of episodes on like, I'll reference one of our own moves, 10 true clients, 100 true customers, or 1,000 true fans. An old school TMBA favorite. But it's this idea of like, I love that kind of napkin math moves, you know, like theoretically gaming out. That's a great approach to developing a business strategy in my view is like, hey, like what's the end game here? You know, where could this possibly go? I love that move. So my next move is selling to the mid-market is hard. If you do it, expand into it later. So don't start your business selling to the mid-market. And what he's talking about with a mid-market is kind of companies that just became corporations, like companies with like 50 employees is what he's talking about. And he calls it the worst of both worlds. They're not small enough to be nimble. So like they're not small enough to kind of be early adopters of your product or really rely on it to grow their business. And they're big enough that their fear of change trumps the potential rewards of improvement. And it's tempting because there's lots and lots of these companies, right? There's very few companies with like a thousand employees or 500. There's always these kind of power law dynamics. And then you got a lot of potential companies with 50 employees and they got a lot of money. You know, they're doing well. And so you think, man, I'm going to sell into this market. I think his move, his insight that, look, it's a briar patch. It's really tough in there is a good thing to keep in mind. Damn, my next Kung Fu move is kind of a long one, but I'll read it. 
Founders are caught by surprise by the scaling process. If you haven't operated at the executive level at a scaling startup, you don't appreciate how different and difficult it is. There are not enough blogs or books about this phase. Often leaders go underground. Founders arrogantly believe that the beginning is the hardest part because it is hard. But many startups top out between 5 to 20 million in revenue. That was us. That's fine if you don't wish to scale, but if you do, your arrogance prevents you from the necessary transformations. What got you to 20 million is very different from what will get you to 100 million. You need help, new sorts of employees with a different organization, and you better surround yourself with people with more experience and skills than you have. How will your ego cope with that? This is something that we ran into with our last business, and I think we naively understood this, actually, which was like what got us to a couple million bucks in revenue wasn't going to get us to 10 million bucks in revenue. And we basically just clapped our hands together and we're like, all right, let's just walk the other way. (laughs) I don't know how our ego interacted with us there. I've seen this happen in our companies. I've seen this happen in other people's companies around us. And it's true, which is you're going to have to be able to hire people that have a lot, like not just like, oh, this guy has like two or three more years of experience than I do. Like this person like worked at Uber or this person like did something great in a former life, like, and I'm going to bring them in and they're going to tell me how dumb I am for what I've been doing kind of thing. This is hard because these people are really expensive. And also it's hard because you're going to get to see how inexperienced you are or something. But, you know, WP Engine, the company that Jason owns. I think that he's probably speaking from experience. This is that company is as far as I know the largest company that he's ever run before. He has like true professionals working there, like people with like decades of experience. That's what it takes. Like you got to bring in a real CEO sometimes and step down and say like, you know, I was a 10 million dollar CEO, I'm not a 100 million dollar CEO, and your ego is probably going to suffer. Yeah, and you know, part of it too is like those people aren't easy to find or to convince to work for you. It's tough, right? It's tough to find somebody that's actually able to execute and that you can collaborate with as well. So this is an interesting point. For me, it's like definitely outside of my experience. And it's interesting to say like, hey, your arrogance is preventing you from understanding these things. And I definitely think in my case that my arrogance has prevented me from learning a lot of these key concepts when they would have benefited me quite a bit. Well, one thing too that entrepreneurs I think like undervalue is that like they're doing the one thing that they can do, which is getting companies off the ground. And these people that come in later to run much larger organizations, a lot of times they're smart enough to know that they're not entrepreneurs. They're like, oh yeah, that's not me. I'm like Mr. and Mrs. coming at a hundred million and like let's bring this thing to a billion dollars and go public. Like what you did, like good for you. I could never do that. Right. I think a lot of times it's the entrepreneurs that have a hard time letting go of what they've built and understanding that they're not the people to bring it to the next level. My next move is pricing determines everything else. And a corollary is price must be a part of your initial customer discovery, not an afterthought after you, quote, first make sure there's a pain. I'll tell a personal anecdote, actually, that's related to this. I was 
at a, a quite an interesting table of individuals after DC Austin last year. And Jason Cohn, the author of this wonderful article, was there. And it was cool meeting him for the first time because he's, this is not blowing smoke. He is a unique intellectual force in the room. So we're sitting around this table, there's eight entrepreneurs, and it's after DC Austin. So this would not be an uncommon situation where one of the attendees of the event kind of took the table to say, hey, guys, this is a great event. It's so unique. I never kind of felt this experience at an event before. It's, it's a different vibe. You really could charge like five or 10 times what you're charging for this, or at least double. You should double your prices. And Jason jumped in and he said, that's exactly what you want people to say. And I thought it was so insightful because intuitively I knew that we couldn't double our prices. That the thought that I was going to start charging $1,400 for this conference wasn't going to work. And Jason's point that like you want people to have this experience that they got a great value, you know? And all of a sudden, if they're paying twice or three or times more for it, maybe it's not a great value. I just want to point out like how rare this is. I'll tell you why it is. It starts with a G and it ends with read, greed, <laughs> right? Like all these companies, all these people, they get greedy and they figure out that people are willing to pay a lot more. There's so few products in my life, Dan, that I buy and I'm like, oh my gosh, I would pay triple for this. This is amazing. Yes. But it's not only that customer feeling, but it's customer behavior. That's what I like about this move, Ian, is that I think on the internet, in internet marketing spaces, there's all these stupid gurus talking about stupid things that they've never done. Look, here's the reality. Your price affects your market dramatically. Running experiments with it, having it part of your early strategy, which is one of your moves, Ian, like price is just, I think, so undervalued in this sort of internet marketing business advice world. And that's why I really value this move is that entrepreneurs who are thinking thoughtfully about their prices, who are experimenting, and who understand the effect of their pricing are more likely to win the fight. The reason why price is important to me is we started off building products. There was no intangibles. Like It was all tangibles. It was like, the metal costs this much. Yeah. <laughs> it costs this much to put it on a boat. Like when we get it here, it's going to cost this much. After we pay everybody that was in line with their hands out, it's going to cost us this much. And like there were real numbers associated with building products. And so you kind of had to like engineer backwards from that. Are you to the point where you're going to enter in like this is your special move? So like, these are your finishing moves. These are the ones that like are unique to your character. Wait a minute. This is like this is too much pressure. Jason had like a list of 50 of them. If you're the kung fu fighter that we're selecting in the game, like you select the boss man as your character. These are the unique moves to the boss man. My first one is a little bit philosophical, but I think it'll resonate with some people. So, what you want in life isn't what your customers want. And what your customers want, if you can deliver it to them, will get you what you want in life. That's a mouthful, Ooh. right? A lot of wants and what's. What you want in life isn't what your customers want. I love this one. You know, Dan, a lot of the reasons why people start lifestyle businesses, the reasons why people start bootstrap businesses is to change their lives. Like That's what we did. In 2007, we we're like, we want to change our lives. And so we sat down and we figured out how we were going to change our lives. And it was vis-a-vis -vis 
selling products to customers. But we didn't go around telling our customers, like, isn't it going to be great when you buy this product? It's going to change my life. (laughs) We started off by, like, solving their problems. I don't know why this is, like, a hard concept for people to understand, but it really is a hard concept for a lot of people to grok, which is basically you have to be super, super not selfish in the beginning of starting a business. You have to do what everybody else wants you to do. You have to be a servant to people. You have to build what people want. And eventually they're going to pay you for it. They're going to reward you for it. And then you can live the kind of life that you want to live. I don't know why, Dan. I don't know why so many people start the story by saying like, this is what I want or this is what I deserve and this is how I'm going to get it. And then they get upset when the results don't roll in. I love it. Actually, my first move is sort of related. If you're having trouble making your startup work, take a deep dive into the rarely talked about issue of founder fit. It's not necessarily true that you as a founder, potential founder, can just walk along the sizzler buffet of options and choose the kind of startup that you want to run. That oftentimes... There's something important or unique or distinct about you that makes it hard for you to do certain kinds of startups. It's going to be different for everybody. I've seen so many people struggle to start a business for years, for a decade. I've seen them. They're always got a new idea. They're always going to do this, do that. And you hear about it for years. And then all of a sudden, they get a job somewhere and they're crushing it. And it's like, well, maybe that person wasn't the person that has a good fit with getting something started from scratch. This kind of thing happens all the time with startups. You know, it's like you got a business, say, like in the e-commerce space or Amazon that really requires somebody who understands the P&L, who understands math and numbers and how to make all those things work. If it's not working, you know, it might not be that you're a problem or the startup's a problem. It might be that there's not a good fit between your skill set and what the startup requires. Dan, to piggyback on this point, I think a lot of people look at founders and successful business owners and they just think like, wow, how did they get there? You know, if you start to dig into people's story, like it's actually like pretty simple most of the time, right? For us, it was like, oh, wow, you guys were the number one manufacturer of valet parking equipment. How did you even find that? Well, I didn't find it. I was actually a valet parking attendant. Yeah. And then I started manufacturing products and then I put two and two together. And I look at most people that have started business and that's generally the story, right? It's like they have some kind of history with the product, with the market. They have some kind of technical understanding that allows them to be good at it. The people that you're talking about, Dan, that end up hunting and hunting and hunting for businesses for their whole life, they can't figure it out, are generally people that have no specialized knowledge at all. (laughs) (laughs) Not to say like you're a better or worse person because of that, but like you haven't taken a couple of years to deep dive in something enough to understand how to make money doing it. Very good. So what's your finishing move, boss man? Design, quality, customer service. Focus on these things. Nothing is new. Improve on what exists if you can't change the world. I don't view myself as like a world changer, Dan. I don't know if you realize that, but like not Elon Musk. Not yet, boss man. Not sending things to Mars, you know, none of this stuff. 
I'm improving on what already exists. I've already tried to come up with my own products. Those were the products that failed miserably. I'm tweaking. Look, boss man, before I get just overly depressed, I want something for the future of our partnership, this podcast, and our entrepreneurial trajectory is so many great people really only turned it on in their 40s. Okay? So let's not let's not talk about Stephen Pressfield, Emmanuel Kant. He didn't write his great works until he was in his 40s. And I've got a laundry list of people in my personal notes that turned it on in midlife. Come on, me and you, we're going to do this thing. Come on, man. (laughs) Okay. I don't want to be negative, and I hope I'm not being negative. And this applies to Dynamite Jobs, our newest venture. We're finding new things to do in the recruiting space. We're finding new things to do in remote work, in job boards. But none of the things that we've come up with so far are new ideas per se, right? They're building on old ideas. They're applying new technologies to old ideas, but they're not new ideas, right? They're just they're just little tweaks. And so I think my challenge to people listening to this podcast is just find a tweak because it's a lot less intimidating than coming up with a new idea. Like you just have to figure out a better way to market a product. You have to figure out a better design. You have to find a better cost structure, right? There's a million things that you can do, but don't put too much pressure on yourself to come up with a new idea. And for those of you who are resonating with the boss man's point right now, I will reference you to one of our greatest hits called Rip, Pivot, and Jam. We'll link it up in the show notes to this one. My finishing move, our finishing moves, Ian, they're all of a certain flavor. So here's mine. Get paid to work in your market for years before you start your company. It's referencing that simplicity that you're pointing to. It's referencing that like no need to be a world changer. It's simply that reading articles on the internet and taking courses and listening to podcasts and stuff, it's nothing compared to working in your market and, and earning that specialized knowledge and then finding a tweak from there. And Starting a business is just so much harder than getting a job. And so if you can't get a job and crush in that job for a small company, then you're not going to be able to do it on your own as someone with no resources. So that's my challenge to you is if you want to start a business in the e-commerce space, in the blogging space, in the content, whatever, go crush. Go crush for somebody while you're getting paid. If you can't do that, I don't believe that you can start a company. One follows from the other. That's the simplicity that you're talking about, Ian. But there's a lot of intelligence baked into that concept of doing a good job, actually creating results, having good relationships, persuading another party to reimburse you such that you can live off of that. All those things are what entrepreneurship's all about, and you can do it in the context of a small business. All right, boss man, thanks for sharing your Kung Fu moves with us and a big shout to Jason Cohn for continuing to share his thoughts on his personal blog. Even though he's got X numbers of hundreds of employees, still taking the time to share that entrepreneurial goodness with the rest of us. We appreciate it, Jason. And that's it for this one. We are going to post this one up at tropicalmba.com slash Kung Fu. If you've got any moves you'd like to share with us, Or if you'd like to check out the links to anything mentioned in today's episode, do check it out over at the blog, tropicalmba.com slash kung fu. But we're not going to go just yet because we're going to do rap and reviews because why not? 
I've been thinking a lot about this podcast distribution because we've been changing our servers and our feeds and all this kind of stuff and getting stats. And turns out that a lot of people in South Africa listen to the TNBA podcast. Shout out South Africa. <laughs> and so I've been thinking about these, these different systems that people are using. And I checked out our iTunes reviews and we got some new iTunes reviews. So I wanted to read one of them today, traditionally over a rap track of your choosing. So let us know the track and why we're listening to it. Okay. So I got reintroduced to this group and I wouldn't exactly call it rap, but it's definitely like of the hip hop genre. I was listening to these guys in college and I just completely forgot about it through the power of Spotify, which is like the most powerful music generator since college. I've become reacquainted and here they are, the avalanches. And the name of the track is the Wozard of Eyes. Clever. All right, this week's review is from Nata from the Ukraine. Five stars. I've been a fan for three years. <laughs> I love that. I've listened to this podcast from all around the globe, walking by the Tower Bridge in London, on the border between Brazil and Argentina, on the streets of New York. It's amazing how connected these guys make me feel to the community of entrepreneurs. It's always great to get new ideas on every pod. That's right, Ian, pod. It's great to see how the hosts evolve year by year and how their priorities and perspectives shift. I would definitely recommend this podcast to anyone who's wondering if it's worth your time. It's definitely worth it. That's right. Thanks so much, Nata. We appreciate you listening. All right. That's it for this week's pod. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.